Hello and welcome, friends. We're glad that you're listening and watching our Lenten preaching series in the midst of these uncertain times around coronavirus. One of these things that this sickness has brought about is perspective. We begin to learn what's essential and what we ought to hold loosely. And so our format may be changing from day to day. It may be that we have a preacher come in uh, and we record live uh, and archive that. It may be that they live stream or record a sermon from where they're located, honoring our present schedule. Or it may be that we have a different kind of programming uh, brought to you. Uh, but regardless, we're looking at having something every single day during Lent. Even though uh, things are changing around us, ministry hasn't stopped. And so what we think is absolutely essential is uh, what God has to say about uh, his word. And we are reminded of this during our Lenten services here on Sundays uh, when we sing from Isaiah chapter 55. For as the rain and the snow come down from heaven and do not return there but water the earth, making it bring forth and sprout, giving seed to the sower and bread to the eater. So shall my word that goes out from my mouth, it shall not return to me empty, but it shall accomplish that which I purpose and shall succeed in the thing for which I sent it. And so without further delay, will you join me in praying for what we are about to hear? Grant to us, Heavenly Father, that the words which we will hear this day with our outward ears may through thy grace be so grafted inwardly in our hearts that they may bring forth in us the fruit of good living to the honor and praise of thy name through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. Well, I send you greetings from St. George's Church in Nashville, Tennessee. I'm so very honored to be a part of the Cathedral Church of the Advents, Lenten preaching series. You all are gracious to have me. I am preaching to you now from an empty sanctuary here at St. George's Nashville. This feels very odd, I know, for all of us. Uh, my prayer is that the Holy Spirit will somehow connect us to one another and connect us to God the Father in spite of this technical uh, social distancing. I wish to give um, thanks for Dean Pearson, uh, for his leadership of the church in Birmingham to the larger church, and I'm also very grateful for his friendship. I know we have a lot of mutual friends uh, in Christ uh, here in Nashville with so many of you in Birmingham and elsewhere, and again, it's an honor to be with you today. I wanna read to you Psalm number one. Happy are those who do not follow the advice of the wicked, or take the path that sinners tread, or sit in the seat of scoffers, but their delight is in the law of the Lord. And on his law they meditate day and night. They are like trees planted by streams of water, which yield their fruit in its season, and their leaves do not wither. In all that they do, they prosper. The wicked are not so, but are like chaff that the wind drives away. Therefore, the wicked will not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. For the Lord watches over the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. 
Here ends the reading. Well, again, these are obviously very strange, very unfamiliar times. And what better times for Christians to engage Holy Scripture as the place of living contact with the living God than now? And that's, that's what this sermon is about. Just three weeks ago, I stood with a group of parishioners uh, from here at St. George's on the traditional site for the Sermon on the Mount in the Holy Land, overlooking the Sea of Galilee. We were there on an absolutely gorgeous, gorgeous evening. Spring was flowering early there in the Galilee on those green slopes. It was so very tranquil as our group uh, reheard that famous sermon. And that actually, after now that we've come back to the United States, seems so very, very long ago. It's easy to forget, however, that the social mood around Jesus back then was not actually tranquil any more than it is for us today. In fact, a very close reading of the gospel tells us that there was a kind of a frenzy and uncertainty and perhaps even a hysteria uh, that was swirling around Jesus at the beginning of his Galilean ministry. We are also told that there was this great hunger for so many people to get, to get close to him, to find out exactly who he was. It's Luke's gospel that has this interesting comment telling us that all in the crowd were trying to touch him, trying to touch him. So this is where we are today, at least I hope so. Those who gather in the midst of frenzied anxiety and uncertainty and a yearning for, for healing, a yearning to touch Jesus, that's where we are. How does this happen? So just a minute ago, you listened reverently to a reading of Scripture. Christians are members of a centuries and centuries old community who belong to a book, a community who is given capacity to get near Jesus, to touch him through scripture. And so I want to encourage you in personally developing and deepening this capacity that you have. The Holy Spirit, I would say, works through the Bible like wind, blowing away the chaff of every false hope and promise and false fear, leaving only the pure wheat that forms the bread of life. So to be a Christian has always meant to be a Bible-believing follower of Jesus. But in my tribe, in the Episcopal Church, phrases like Bible-believing go against the grain of a kind of prideful self-identification as an enlightened church that treasures reason and intellectual skepticism and modern critical methods as if these values were somehow more important than simple trust of scripture. And frankly, I think this can become a conceit. It can also mask what is in fact simple ignorance of scripture. We do not look like the intellectual branch of Christendom when we look for the book of Jonah in the New Testament 
and we try to find the letters of Paul in the old. So I had us hear Psalm 1 today. Happy is the one who delights in the law of the Lord and meditates on his law day and night. Psalm 1 may or may not be the most important of all the Psalms, but coming first, clearly it is foundational. It is about living in right relationship with God, living a life also that reflects on that relationship constantly. What is characteristic of that? The blessed, the happy, the righteous are those who delight in endless meditation of such a life as it would be to live in right relationship with God revealed in the law, in Torah, or as we would say today with our collection of sacred books in scripture. You may have heard this, but the Hebrew word that is translated here as meditate literally has the sense of of chewing on something, savoring something in the mouth, a slow and ruminative growling delight. So Christians have always heard in this psalm a call to constant meditation on scripture as a practice of loving devotion more than as some kind of religious law. So listen, I get, I, I do, I get that the Bible is difficult. It is complicated. It is old. The earliest portions were written 3,000 years ago. But the question for us is, would we trust God enough to see if he might meet us there? The Bible is not the only place to come near Jesus, but you will not fully recognize him anywhere else if you do not know him through scripture. I was sharing with some clergy friends on our staff here just yesterday that I do not know, I do not know how people manage to be faithful and hopeful in times like these without spending time with the Lord in his word. It is such a gift that God has given us. To engage the Bible is to be blessedly confronted with the true story of reality, the true story of who you really are, exposing all the false narratives that capture our imaginations, ensnare our souls, and confuse us about our identity. We belong to God through the life, the death, and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. That is the most important thing about you, and all of Scripture points us to that fundamental reality, that fundamental identity. Crisis ministry is always meant to bring us back to that. So I want to close with some personal testimony. My testimony is simply this. Years and years of getting up first thing in the morning and spending time in the Bible has only increased my deep and ongoing curiosity to, to know this God who sent his only son into the world, not to condemn the world, but to save the world. And the more time I spend in scripture, the more I am convinced 
that the ways and the aspirations of God revealed there are in fact best for me, even if they are far from what I would have come up with if left to my own devices. And I want to say this too. Our doctrine of scripture flows from our doctrine of God. God does not wish to remain opaque or a puzzle or some capricious deity from the ancient world. God wants to be known. God wants to be trusted. And the Bible is the church's primary place where God has chosen to make that happen. It is always there where Christians come to touch Jesus. Last week, my family marked the third anniversary of my father's uh, death. And last year, my mother went through the difficult process of selling the home I grew up in and moving to a more suitable and smaller residence in a lovely retirement community. It was the right thing to be sure. But I have to say that that move was like another death in the family because I cannot tell you how deeply I have been shaped by and my own children have been shaped by our family experiences in that lovely home on a broad river in Virginia. I went up there twice in the winter of last year, 2019, to help my mother finally move out of the house. And you know what I realized? It's not the furniture lying in plain sight that represents the hard work of moving out of a home. No, it is in the closets, the attic, the basement, the garage, decades and decades of accumulation. When my mother came up to me on one of those two visits, she looked me in the eye and she said, I need you to do something for me. I need you to clean out Bill's bedroom closet. I simply cannot do it. Bill was my dear younger brother. It will be 10 years this spring since he died tragically of his alcohol addiction. Again, my mother said, I just need you to clean out his closet. I, I know that I'm not going to be able to do it. Would you please do this for me? Well, I said, of course, Mom, I, I will do it. Um, that was a lot harder than I thought it would be. So I spent about three hours one afternoon uh, going through old boxes that belonged to Bill, boxes filled with memorabilia, personal, personal effects, uh, as varied as the very books of the Bible. I looked at photographs and certificates and report cards from grade school, letters from camp and ribbons and trophies from tennis and baseball as kids. There was an old photo of the two of us standing side by side in our little league football uniforms, squinting menacingly against the sun. I would bet our combined weight at that time wasn't 150 pounds. I found an old chest set, a magic show kit Bill loved to entertain the family. Then I leafed through high school reports and letters and pictures, old cassette tapes of his favorite music. There were letters to friends during and after college, including letters to an old girlfriend. 
I came across a diary that I knew nothing about from his early 20s. There was also quite a lot of creative writing. There were sketches that Bill had done. He was artistic in ways that I am not. I found an old VHS tape of a low-budget short film, a dark comedy that Bill starred in when he was living in New York City in his early 30s, back when he wanted to be an actor. Bill did not actually hit the big time as an actor, but his friend and his co-star in that short film did, John C. Riley. Later, I came across a couple of letters to my parents written in the throes of his addiction. Bill was a beautiful writer. Bill was a beautiful human being. It was all laid out there in the room before me. And what to do with all of this testimony to the life and the wonder who was my brother. Well, I kept a few items for myself, but the best of it, the bits and pieces that best told his story, I carefully packed away into a single box for his daughter, my niece. Her name is Ella. She was only nine then, but just a few weeks ago, she turned 19. Now it is Ella who is the beautiful young adult with her whole life ahead. She's doing very well. But she doesn't know her father very well. Childhood memories linger, but it's been a long time for her now. She also doesn't ask a lot of questions, at least not a lot of questions of me about him. And I've wondered, at numerous times through the years, if she would like to know more about her father. And so I wondered if she might like to have this box of things that tell his story, that tell of who he really was. So eventually I came down uh, the stairs from Bill's bedroom, holding the box in my arms. And as it happened, Ella was standing in the hallway right then as I did. And I came down and I said to her, Ella, this is a box of things that belong to your daddy. And I feel very confident that he would want you to have the contents of them because he would want you to know him. He would want you to know who he really was. And I continued, I said, you know, you may not care to go through this now, but I think you'll be very grateful if you hold on to this box because one day you'll want to see all that is in there. And so I laid the box on the floor before Ella, right at her feet. I think I perhaps thought that she would merely thank me politely and walk away or maybe stare at it silently, unable fully to process what it was that she was being given. But instead what she did was what I least expected. She immediately stooped down, ripped open the box, and eagerly started rifling through its contents. She wants to know her father. We want to know our father. And our father wants to be known. Behold, I set this box before you that tells you his story. Behold, I set before you this holy scripture that you may know him 
as you are already fully known, an all-surpassing love revealed in Jesus Christ our Lord, on whom we can meditate day and night and day and night and never grow weary, learning more and more of who this Father is and how much he loves us. So that is why I read the Bible and I cannot think of a better time for all of us to do so again, beginning again today. Let us pray. Lord God, we thank you this day and in this season of disorientation and crisis, you reveal yourself to us in scripture. We are grateful that for us and for generations of Christians, the Bible tells the one true story of who you are and who we are. Send us your spirit, O Lord, that in this time when we need so much to be returned to our true identity, we would return to your word whose entire trajectory from beginning to end leads us near to touch Jesus the Christ. Amen.